Hebrews chapter 10. And in a few minutes we will begin looking at verses 19 through 22. Before we do, let me preface what I would share with you this morning by giving you a little contrast. This morning we went to a sunrise service and we were trying to find out what the weather was going to be like so we turned on the weather channel and the lady was very quick to tell the world on the weather channel that the weather at least in our part of the country was going to be good until later on because uh, um, after all she said you want to have good weather for your Easter egg hunt And we know that this is the day when the Easter Bunny shows up. And as I listened to that, I thought, my, 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 what a contrast to certainly what is on my heart and hopefully the heart of everybody that truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing to see the trivialization of the most significant event in history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes... I fear that we do not fully appreciate, even as Christians, the profound significance of what actually happened when Christ died for our sins and when He rose again. And Resurrection Sunday comes and goes and life just kind of goes on unaffected. Somehow the profundity of the cross and the massive implications of what happened very seldom really change how many Christians live their life. And it's easy to get lost in the superficial churchianity of our culture. My desire this morning is to try to help you through the power of the Word, penetrate through all of the distractions in your life this morning and blast through all of even the the clever self-deceptions that we're all so certain that we do not have. And by the power of the Spirit and through His infallible and soul-piercing Word, somehow stir your hearts afresh with the life-changing and God-glorifying truth of Scripture. Let's pray before we look into the Word this morning. Father, again, I pray as Your servant that Your Spirit will speak to each of us through Your Word. Lord, chase chase us with conviction this morning. Lord, I pray that You will sober us with the reality of our shallowness and expose our self-serving excuses. Lord, I pray that through Your Word this morning You will even reveal those delicious sins that we love to to savor in the secret recesses of our imaginations. Lord, I pray that You will unmask our hypocrisy this morning, that You will uncover any proud religiosity that might be there. And then, Lord, will You gently summon us back into Your presence with a revived awareness of Your holiness. Lord, I pray, even as the Apostle prayed, that we might have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation of the knowledge of Him. Lord, will You give us 
enlightenment so that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened so that we might be able to to just see what you would have us to see this morning. Lord, make us amazed with your grace this day. Make us so awed by your glory that our lives will be changed from this day forward. Lord, may this Resurrection Sunday become a new stake of resolve that each of us drive into the ground of our wills. I pray this for your sake, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 19. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil or from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I hope that you share my fascination with the miracles that took place when Christ paid our ransom on the cross. Some of this will be a bit of review from last week, but you will remember that when our Lord died, the sun was darkened and the earth shook and many dead saints were resurrected. And we especially noticed last week, and we will notice more this week, another fascinating miracle that took place at that moment. And that was that the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom by God Himself. What a graphic picture that was. Attesting to the reality that God was satisfied with the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. That justice had been served and that the penalty for sin had been paid. And Jesus, we know, was the perfect satisfaction the perfect propitiation of our sin. Now again, by way of reminder, it's fascinating to think about this great veil that was in the temple. It was, of course, a barrier that blocked the entrance to the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, of course, was the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing the presence of God. And so this veil was a constant reminder that sinful man could not approach a holy God. Only the high priest could enter in on the Day of Atonement, and he would go in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. We know that the temple in the day of Jesus had a veil that was massive. It was estimated to be about six inches thick. We know that it took about 200 men to remove it once a year for cleaning. And it was a breathtaking tapestry with designs of the cherubim that were on blue and purple and scarlet linens, all symbolizing the glory and the majesty of God. And all, by the way, delineated in the Old Testament with respect to what should be on them. And the most holy place symbolized the very presence of God, 
that holy of holies. It was a place where sinful man could never enter lest he die apart from the high priest who had to be cleansed to make sure his heart was right. Otherwise, he would die. And in some cases, we read that they would have bells upon their robes and some even ropes upon their feet that in case they were to die, they could reach in and pull them out. We know, by the way, that this place was so sacred, even in the days of Jesus, that there was an elevator system that they had devised so that they could clean this massive and high area. And the elevator system that they designed had a back portion so that the men would face away from the interior of the Holy of Holies and could clean the walls and never look inside. And yet, at the very moment that our Lord died, suddenly that veil was ripped in two in front of all of those worshipers. What a marvel of redemption. Now think about this. That suddenly the ransom had been paid in full and God's justice had been perfectly satisfied. And of course, all of that was signified by God Himself, by God removing the barrier. What a dramatic picture of Christ's perfect and sufficient atonement for sin. And of course, all of the millions of prior temple ceremonies and sacrifices were never able to permanently and fully atone for sin. And yet, at this very moment, the Lord paid for it all. All of the other sacrifices merely pointed to a lamb that was yet to come. And according to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12, we read that He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. And verse 14 says, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are, are sanctified. And of course, what did the Lord say just before He died? It is It is finished. And now because of Jesus, we can enter into the very presence of God. Well, this morning I want to draw your attention to three crucial concepts concerning the veil that flow from this text in Hebrews 10. Concepts that I trust will lift your hearts to new levels of love and understanding of the excellency and the majesty of Christ and thereby find great nourishment for your souls. This morning, we will look at the reality of the veil, the rending of the veil, and our response to the veil. First, we must understand the reality of the veil. Verse 19 says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. In light of what I've just said, it's easy to understand that it was utterly foreign to the Jews to enter into the Holy of Holies. Utterly foreign to them. Throughout Old Testament history, we read how God would not allow anyone to see Him and live because sin had alienated man from His very presence. We read about that in the garden, do we not? Where because of sin, man was required to leave the garden and God placed angels with swords 
of fire to guard the entrances. We read at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law in Exodus 19 of how unapproachable God was. That text says that He came with thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. You see, friends, we know that the people feared for their lives when they came anywhere near the presence of God. Later in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 19, they said to Moses, Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. You ask, why such divine intimidation? Well, the answer is given to us in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 20. When God spoke through Moses and said, Do not fear, for God has come to test you and that His fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. You see, God made it abundantly clear that the holy presence was utterly unapproachable. You will remember in your Old Testament history that when the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the Philistines, they soon discovered the terrifying reality of what happens when sinful man trifles with the holy God. And later on, when they sent the ark back, the men at Bet Shemesh quickly discovered the divine consequences of presuming upon God when they violated the sanctity of the ark and they looked inside it, causing a great slaughter to ensue. And in horror, they said in 1 Samuel 6.20, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? See, we understand that His presence was housed in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And again, it's often referred to as the most holy place, housing the Ark of the Covenant. And the presence of God would hover over the mercy seat between the cherubs. And this unapproachable place was concealed by this incredible veil. Again, a perpetual reminder of the barrier of sin between sinful man and holy God. So, when the writer of Hebrews comes along and says... We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Oh my, such a thought was inconceivable to them. Because they understood the otherness of God. The holiness of God. They feared God. Because Yahweh, they knew, was a consuming fire. Yet God in His mercy comes and gives them this graphic illustration of His desire to fellowship with the redeemed. And we see this in, secondly, the rending of the veil. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50, 
we read that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Don't you know this absolutely astounded the worshipers? Maybe a better word would have been it horrified the worshipers. Suddenly they were exposed to the presence of Jehovah God. And they knew that death would certainly be the consequence. You see, they did not understand that what once was a symbol of separation was now one of invitation. They did not understand that suddenly the judge can now be their father if they place their faith in the Lamb. They didn't understand that suddenly the law has been abrogated and that sin can be forgiven through Christ. They did not understand that with the law there was separation, but with grace there is invitation. They did not understand that with the law there was judgment, but now with grace there is forgiveness. And certainly they did not understand that with the law there was fear, yet with grace there can be confident joy to enter into His presence. But notice in verses 19 through 20, again, he says we have confidence to enter this holy place by the blood of Jesus. And he goes on to say, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. You see, this text says that we can now enter by a new way. It's fascinating in the original language, this word new means freshly slaughtered. Well, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? We can enter in now through this freshly slaughtered way. By the way, it also has the meaning of something that cannot grow old. So in other words, what we're, we're reading here is that Jesus was this freshly slaughtered Lamb of God whose atoning work would never need repeated. It would never grow old. It would never be outdated. Well, not only can we come now through the freshly slaughtered way, but also it's a living way. My, once again, we see a divine paradox. Only death can conquer death. Christ had to die in order that we might live. So it's literally saying here, paradoxically, paradoxically, that the fresh, it was the freshly slaughtered way, yet also the living way. You see, friends, this is resurrection truth. The Lord had to die so that we could live. And His flesh was like the veil in the temple. It also had to be rent. It had to be torn in two. Because you see, a living Savior could not save. Only a dying Savior could save. I'm reminded of the veil of His flesh as I look in the New Testament and I read, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus peeled back His flesh and His glorious Shekinah burst forth in that ineffable light of His glory. And Peter, James, and John saw it and they were terrified because they had seen the glory of God. You may recall that at that point they wanted to build a tabernacle right then and there. 
But now the veil has been forever removed, allowing all who place their faith in Him access into His glorious presence and without fear. You see, no longer is there a need for a priest to mediate the covenantal promises of God. There's no need for a priest to make atonement for the sins of the people or to intercede on their behalf. No longer do we need a priest to bridge that great gulf between God and man in reconciliation because Jesus became that great high priest, the merciful and faithful high priest. And as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom in behalf of all men. You see, He is, as our text tells us in Hebrews 10.21, our great priest over the house of God. Well, now, beloved, we come to the very heart of the matter. We come to where the rubber meets the road, as we would say. We have to ask the question, practically speaking, in light of these magnificent and transcendent theological truths about sin and the Savior, and the reality and rending of the veil, what difference should this make in our life? In other words, we must ask the question, what should our response be to the veil? What are the implications now that the veil has been rent? Well, we see it here in this text. We see in verse 22, let us draw near. You see, this is a precious thought with implications that frankly boggle the mind especially to these early Jewish people. Draw near. You see, the veil has been removed. And herein is invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Back to verse 19 again. It says, Since therefore, brethren, I believe the brethren there is referring to the fellow unbelieving Jews, the ethnic brothers there, the worshipers of Yahweh, They were familiar with all of these matters. And they were under the heavy yoke of the law. And we read, since therefore, brethren. In other words, in light of such a precise and profound doctrinal treatise that has been presented to you. Since the case has been made. Since there is forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. And since there is the gift of grace. In light of all of that, therefore, place your faith in Him and have the penalty and the guilt of your sins removed forever. In Him, you see, there is forgiveness. There is mercy. There is grace. There is peace. There is hope. There is joy forevermore. And perhaps they even remembered another invitation by the Lord Himself in Matthew 11. When the Lord said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. 
Oh, yes, but I can already hear the yes buts in our current day. When I invite you as a minister of the gospel of Christ to draw near to Christ for forgiveness of sins. Yes, but some will say my sins are too great. There surely cannot be forgiveness for me. Ah, oh, no, no, no. Never, and I want you to hear this, never is a man closer to grace than when he is quite certain he cannot have it. Grace comes from an infinite reservoir of the love of God and His atoning work on the cross was an all-sufficient ransom. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And we read from the prophet Isaiah that though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. Well, others will say, well, yes, but surely I am not so bad of a person to deserve the wrath of God like you preach. Surely he will find me acceptable. Surely I will be able to approach His throne someday at a judgment and prevail based upon my own merits. Oh, dear friend, those are the words of a fool. For the Word of God says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. In Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 2, we read that every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And Jesus said it so clearly, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Yes, but another person will say, I already have a religious system that will save me. I do not need this Jesus you speak of. He is but one way of many. Well, I would humbly submit to you that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but through me. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we read that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And again, as we've already read, there is but one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Not Muhammad, not Ramtha, or not any other concocted God that man has contrived. Yes, but another person will say, I'm not ready just yet to enter through that torn veil. But I assure you, I will consider what you've said and wait for a more appropriate day to come. Oh, dear friend, I have pleaded with such people on their deathbed. And I know what it's like to watch people procrastinate until the flames of hell suck them into eternity. I would plead with you to run to the Savior while there is still time. The Word of God says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. 
Another person will say, yes, but I think the whole thing is one huge myth. No, you don't. You know it's as true as the sun that is shining this day. For the Word of God says that you are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within you. For God has made it evident in you, Romans chapter 1. Therefore, you are without excuse. You are without excuse because your conscience convicts you of your sin. And reason convicts you as you look and you see all that God has created. And may I warn you, on the basis of Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, because of your stubbornness and unrepented heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So today, dear friend, I would invite you to draw near. Now that the veil has been rent, draw near. But notice... Something very important. We must draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. A sincere heart is one that is genuine, full of integrity. It's honest about its approach. It's an earnest heart. It's a heart that's coming for one reason and one reason alone, for the forgiveness of sins, not to be a part of some religious institution or some group. A sincere heart means one without superficiality, one without deception, one without hypocrisy, one without an ulterior motive or some hidden agenda. One, as the Scriptures would say, that is broken over sin, that is contrite, that is spiritually destitute. A heart that realizes that it has nothing to contribute to its salvation. A heart that pleads for mercy. And as a result, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not only a sincere heart, but also one in full assurance of faith, which means a confident faith. A faith that is anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One that will persevere when the trials and days of suffering come. If I can digress for a moment, it's important for you to understand that the word faith today has fallen on hard times. Obviously, what is meant here is genuine saving faith that has been placed in Christ Jesus and Him alone. But in our pluralistic culture, where we believe that we can take syncretistically a little good from all the different religions and put them all together and and finally have one great religion that somehow is going to honor God. In that kind of a culture, frankly, anyone believing in anything supernatural is said to be a person of faith. Whether it's Muhammad, whether it's Buddha, whatever it is. Even faith in yourself. Because... Faith in that way is so mystically defined, virtually everyone qualifies as a person of faith. And I find that even in Christian circles, the word faith is misunderstood and very often misrepresented. For some would say that if you have enough faith, you'll be able to speak things into existence. You've heard of the word faith movement, where you think things and speak things and suddenly you learn how to manipulate God to somehow meet your wishes. And faith becomes something akin to a magical Aladdin's lamp 
And God is the genie that pops out when you do the appropriate thing. For others, faith is something that you exercise occasionally when you're in desperate straits, when you need something. Some crisis hits your life and suddenly you go to God in prayer and you trust God to suddenly spring into action like your personal butler, even though you've largely ignored Him for months, maybe years. And for other people, faith is something that you practice on Sundays or at least on Easter, maybe Christmas and other religious holidays. But beloved, can I put it to you this way? I hope you hear this. Biblically, faith is believing what God says is true. Believing what God says is true about everything and living consistently with those truths, even if it costs you your life. That is faith. That's the type of faith that is spoken of here. Faith is believing what God says is true about everything and living consistently with those truths, even if it costs you your life. And that's what the invitation is here in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Said differently, place your faith in Christ Jesus for the salvation of your sins. Follow Him, which at times will defy reason. Sometimes it might cost you your job. It might even cost you your career. It might cost you your comfort, your personal rights. It might cost you your ambitions. But you see, this is a sincere heart in full assurance. Full assurance that God is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. Well, again, it's important for me to also share with you a message that is extremely unpopular which, by the way, is a certain indication that it needs to be preached. And that is that not everybody who claims even faith in Christ will enter the kingdom. Jesus made it very clear in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven and the implication is that that person will. If I can put that a little bit differently, you know, many people in our culture today recognize Him as Lord, but they have not received Him as Lord. They acknowledge Him. They give lip service to Him. They write lyrics about Him. They sing songs about Him. They write books about Him. They even preach about Him. And they don't know the Lord the Word of God says that some of these have even been allowed to perform miracles in His name. Certainly, those miracles were empowered by Satan, but allowed by God. We read in Scripture that there will be those in hell someday who were zealous and even active in religious service. Dedicated, devoted people that called Him Lord with their lips, but rebellion was in their hearts. Oh, dear friends, the danger of self-deception. I cannot underscore it enough. 
You see, these are the people that try to prove their salvation on the basis of feelings or experiences or healings or angels or earthly material blessings or affiliation with some denominational system or even religious activities. But those are not God's standards. You see, they came, as we read in the New Testament, through the broad gate that leads to destruction. Not the narrow gate of repentance and submission to the Lord and humility and a passion for holiness and God's glory. You see, these are folks that are not concerned about decreasing patterns of sin in their life. They're not concerned about God's commands. They're not concerned about His holy standards. They're not concerned about God's glory. They're just concerned about feeling things and doing things that look religious. Again, self-deception is undoubtedly the most dangerous malignancy of man's character. And quite frankly, I'm convinced that it exists in this church. By the way, that text in Matthew 7 goes on to indicate that many professing believers who are not genuine, just professing, yet they're convinced that there's been some mistake. They're convinced because... They knew of the religious zeal that they have when they were on earth. And that text goes on to help us understand that, that there will be people that will spend many centuries in hell awaiting their final judgment when they will stand before the Lord. And then at that point, the text tells us that they're, they're going to speak in utter desperation and with utmost certainty and they're going to cry out, Lord, Lord, And the Lord will say to them, I never knew you. Why? Because you did not enter through the narrow gate, nor did you do the will of my Father. Oh, friends, the danger of self-deception and religiosity and churchianity. But our response to the veil being rent is to draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, not in some assurance of some cultural Christianity or some phony churchianity. And we are to come having our hearts sprinkled clean, it says, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, the Jews were very familiar with the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat And they were also very familiar with the ceremonial washings that they were required to do. Washings with clear water. And all of that symbolized the need for their guilt and sin to somehow be removed. To be expiated. And so therefore, as the text says here, their hearts needed the continual internal cleansing of justification symbolized by the sprinkling of the blood. And their bodies needed the continual external cleansing of sanctification, symbolized by the washing of pure water. And beloved, here's the great truth. In Christ, God has been satisfied. His sprinkled blood has covered our sins. So there's no longer a need for sacrifices and no longer are we plagued with the guilt of evil consciences. 
and we are washed by the water of the word. Ephesians 5.26 tells us as the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ and our lives increasingly become more like Him. Which, by the way, is the ultimate litmus test of genuine saving faith. Oh, child of God, as Christians, we can find great comfort here. Because of Christ, think of this now, we can enter into the holy place, the very presence of God. Unlike the old priests who must have entered in with great fear and anxiety, as they came into the presence of God, May I challenge each of you who know Christ, all dear friends, go often through the veil that has been rent. Spend much time in the presence of God. Go into Him, not as judge, but as Father. Spend much time in the chamber of His grace. That's where we go to conduct holy business. And I fear that very few people really know what it means to commune with God. Ask yourself, do you? Or do you just do this religious thing occasionally? Friends, if that's you, I would submit to you that you must examine your heart to see if you be in the faith. Child of God, if I can come back to you, the dividing veil of the old nature is gone. There's a new nature now. We're new creatures in Christ. And there's been a covenant of grace now established within our hearts. That's why the Lord said that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They have access into His presence. They will see Him. We've been made partakers of the divine nature. We have fellowship with the Lord. So now we can draw near and we can have confidence to enter that holy place by the blood of Jesus. Our nature has been rent. So don't stand afar from the presence of God because of unconfessed sin or spiritual laziness. You know, at first, when we were new Christians, we trembled when we came into the presence of God. But then as we feel more of the the spirit of adoption, we draw near with what I would like to call sacred delight. And we feel so fully at home with our God. And we can sing with Moses, Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Do not live outside the presence of God, beloved. Dwell with Him. Walk with Him. Abide with Him. Learn to live in nearness to God like the old high priests. Because now our Lord is our high priest and there is this priesthood of the believers where we have access to be able to stand in His presence, blameless with with great joy, as Jude tells us. So use this Resurrection Sunday to examine your heart, will you? Think about the reality of the veil, that symbol of separation, and the rending of the veil, which is a symbol of invitation And of course, our response to the veil should be to draw near. And if you've already drawn near, to stay near. To enjoy His presence. Live in His presence, dear friends. Live by His power. And therefore manifest His glory in your life. 
May I leave you with this doxology of my heart. What mystery was that holy place wherein the priest didst plead for grace, where blood was spilt for sin atone, where in great fear he stood alone. Imagine his acute despair when anxiously he entered there, wondering if Almighty God would kill him with a holy nod. Behind that veil of glorious cloth, where man received the mercy sought, embroidered grandeur, honor, praise, awaiting some redemptive day. Oh, and then the Lamb was sent, and with His death the veil was rent. No more would sin exact a price. Jesus made His sacrifice. That gulf between our God and man was bridged that day as He had planned. Thus, God did rip that veil in two to show that sacrifice was through. Now blameless with a joy so great, we enter through that sacred gate and nevermore will death ensnare a saint who humbly enters there. Let's pray together. Father, may these glorious truths find lodging within our hearts and may they bear much fruit. And Lord, my heart is especially heavy for those that might be within the sound of my voice that might have called You Lord, but they know nothing of You as Lord. I pray that You will move upon their heart as only You can do and strike them with such a profound conviction that they will come running into the arms of the Savior and draw near to the veil that has been rent. In Jesus' matchless name I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.